Welcome to the New Life Lutheran Podcast, where new life in Christ is celebrated and we explore together how to live the Christian life with excellence. Thanks for listening today. You can find our podcast at nllutheranpodcast.com. You can subscribe on Podbeam, Spotify, iTunes, and Google Play Music. If you have any questions for Pastor Eric or would like to suggest topics for our podcast, you can email Pastor Eric at erik.anderson at nllutheran.com. We are continuing tonight our teaching series. called Unmasked, which is appropriate uh, since I am looking at all of you with masks on. But uh, we're spending the, la- the next few weeks, or the last few weeks, all summer long pretty much, exploring the ways that Christians wear masks. Um, and we wear a lot of different kinds of masks, and we've been talking about these masks. Uh, and, and these masks can be the masks of politics. Sometimes our political parties can actually mask our Christian love. Sometimes our hypocrisy can mask our Christian love. And it all centers around this one passage in John 13, where Jesus says to his disciples, the world will know you are my disciples by your love. And it's actually supposed to be love that defines us, not necessarily our political party, not necessarily uh, the way that we can uh, the, the morals that we think we put out into the world, actually what defines us is our love. There are lots of things that are good for us, um, but maybe aren't necessarily, we don't present them in a loving way. So we wear all these masks that kind of disguise and hide us. And we've been exploring the ways to take those masks off, to show the love of Christ, uh, to be good moral people in the right way, right? That's kind of what we've been exploring the last few weeks. And uh, when it comes to public speaking, they have this rule that you should start off with a story to grab your audience's attention. And you may have noticed that, that Pastor Ben and I do this quite often. Pastor Ben's a little bit better at it than I am. And so when I knew that I was going to be preaching on this passage, I read it a couple weeks ago, um, and I began to pray on it and to think about it. And I had about two weeks. I was on vacation last week, and I had two weeks before I was going to preach on this passage. And I thought, great. I have two weeks to, to think about and maybe to even experience a, a story that I can start off the sermon with. And uh, one of my favorite things in the world is to be right. I don't know if you like to be right, but I like to be right. And that was an appropriate way to, to engage this text for this topic that we're talking about today. And so I thought, great, all I have to do is wait for the opportunity of a, a time that I'm right about something. And I can talk about how good it felt to be right about something. And I'm standing up here being completely honest with all of you in the room and at home that two weeks have gone by and honest to goodness, I do not have a story of a time that I was right the last two weeks. Um, And so maybe you can talk to my wife who is right much more than I am right. Um, She has proven me wrong several times over the last two weeks. You can ask her how it feels to be right because she obviously knows it better than I do, but it it feels good to be right. Um, It feels good to, to prove your point about something, and uh, it's, it's interesting, because when we're right about something, when we know that we're right about something, it's hard for us to be gracious about being right, isn't it? 
It's hard for us to present the truth in a way that is gentle and in a way that is compelling for people to hear. You just spend a few minutes on social media, on Facebook, in the world that we are in now, the highly politicized, very tense world that we are in now, and it's hard when someone thinks that they're right to say it in a gentle, careful, kind way, isn't it? And in fact, um, I would say that it's quite often right now that we find people way more than being nice are judgmental about their about the truth that they think is true, right? Whatever political side you fall on, whatever issue that you tend to fall on one side or the other on, when we approach something that we think we're right about, it's hard for us not to judge others that we think are wrong, especially when it comes to things like politics and religion and morality. It's easy for us to place judgment on others because we have the truth and they don't have the truth. And I'll tell you what, Christians, we are like, we are like professionals at being judgmental. And because we have the truth, right? All of us in the room, or at least most of us in the room, I can assume, including myself, I mean, I think that what scripture tells us about the world, what scripture tells us about Jesus, what scripture tells us about ourselves, is true. I think that the scriptures tell us the truth. And I live my life through the lens of the scriptures and what they tell me about myself and about my neighbors, about our world. I think this is true. And it's really easy for Christians who think, who, who believe, and we do believe, and I think that we're right, that have this truth about the world. It's really hard for us not to be judgmental about people who disagree with us. Because the truth that we know is that Jesus has died for us. He's resurrected for us. We are created by a God who loves us and has designed us and is drawing us toward himself. This is a great truth that we know. And so when we see our neighbors and our friends and our family reject it, it's easy for us to become judgmental. We're really, really good at being judgmental because we have the truth. And it's difficult for us to kind of get over ourselves. And what we see in scripture is actually a God who does not delight in, in proving people wrong. And here's, here's what I mean by that. If we read through the Old Testament, I love the Old Testament. I'm an Old Testament guy. I think that they're amazing stories. And this is what we see when we read through the Old Testament, is that God, again and again and again, throughout scriptures, makes the conscious and willing decision to be, um, to be made a fool of by his creation. He creates Adam and Eve and he places them in the garden and he says, you can eat anything you want except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and then he just hands over freedom to them and he lets them prove him wrong. He lets them disobey him. I mean, and if we think through it, he could have just not put the tree in the garden, right? But he gave the option, he gave over the freedom. 
And then as we read through the rest of the Old Testament, as he makes promises to the people of Israel again and again and again, the people of Israel spit in the face of God. And yet he continues to make promises to them, agreements with them, contracts and covenants with them. He continues to let the Israelites make him look like a fool. And the world certainly thinks that God looks like a fool. Abraham, all the heroes of, our, of the Old Testament, Abraham, David, the prophets, at one point or another, they all spit in the face of God and they make him look like a fool because he trusts them, right? He, makes, he, he enters into a relationship with them and he makes promises to them and he holds on to those promises no matter how much they fail him. And so we have a God who shows himself in the scriptures to be the, the kind of God that doesn't, he's not like Thor or Zeus, where he's sitting on a cloud and whenever somebody messes up, he throws lightning bolts down at them. We actually have a God who makes the conscious decision to enter into relationship with his people and gives them the freedom to prove him wrong or to make him look like a fool if they want to. And for whatever reason, God again and again and again makes these promises. Apparently, this is just how God works. And we actually, we have a word for this. Um, in the church, we call it grace. We call it grace. Grace is God's attitude toward us. This constant decision that God makes for us. He is always for us. And no matter how much we mess up, he continues to pursue us and to seek us out and to love us, and ultimately that uh, found its climax in the person of Jesus. He sent his son, one of the people of the, of the Trinity, the second person of the Trinity, he sent his son who died for us, who looked like he failed, who was tortured for us, but yet was resurrected for us. This is how God operates in the world. Just this undying, never-ending grace toward his creatures. He never stops loving and pursuing his creatures. God has the truth. And for whatever reason, he decides that, that being right isn't enough. He actually wants to forgive and pursue those people who are wrong. And he doesn't do it like Zeus or like many of us do. He doesn't share a post that we think just like roast the, the bad guys. He doesn't send down lightning bolts and punish us when we're wrong. He just pursues us patiently and carefully, calling us and drawing us toward himself. This is how God operates. And lots of times this is not how Christians operate. And what we hear in our scripture passage tonight that we'll get, jump into, um, we're going to hear a word of warning about how we should be operating in the world. So this is what we're going to jump into uh, today. This is a teaching on prayer. We started uh, this passage two weeks ago. We talked about Jesus and hypocrisy, how, how he taught on hypocrisy and uh, what hypocrisy is to Jesus. And this is kind of a continuation of those verses that we looked at earlier. So this is uh, Jesus talking about prayer. He's continuing his teaching on prayer. This is what Jesus says. When you are praying, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So we see this picture of a benevolent parent, a father, who knows what we need 
And so when we go to him, when we pray to him, we don't need to be saying lots of words or sounding really smart because he already knows us intimately. Jesus continues, pray then in this way. And then he, he teaches the Lord's Prayer, uh, probably the best known passage in scripture. And this is how we, are, we ought to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. Earlier this year during Lent, we actually spent six weeks exploring the Lord's Prayer. Um, so those of you who were uh, going to those services or watched them online, um, you probably are recalling some of that now. At least I would hope that you are. And, um, and here's what we see in this prayer. This prayer is incredible because most of the time when we think about prayer, we think about asking God for things, Right? And so when we pray, we immediately get into, God, I need this. Please help my uh, child do this in this situation. Uh, please help my friend who got this diagnosis, right? We immediately jump into asking God for things with a wish list. And what we see here in the Lord's Prayer is a different way to approach prayer. Jesus says, when you pray, start off with our Father in heaven. Start off by establishing the relationship, understanding that God is our parent, God is our father, he comes before us, and he actually has created us, and he sustains us, he's our father. Um, we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we don't even get into asking him for things for ourselves. First of all, we're just trying to, ha we're asking him to download the kingdom into us. We're asking him to give us and get us into God's kingdom and his mission and his work in the world. Right, so this is why I, this kind of, uh, this refrain that I said during Lent over and over and over again during those midweek services was prayer is us getting in on what God is already doing. Right, it's not getting God, it's not twisting his arm to get him to do something for us. It's actually us entering into the things that God has already put in motion and it changes us, it does something to us because we are given the Holy Spirit, we're given renewed life, we are given a new vision for the world. He kind of downloads his kingdom into us through prayer. And finally, then we get into asking him for things. Give us this day our daily bread, which means give us just what we need for today. That's kind of the literal uh, translation of that. Not asking him to build our wealth, but give me what I need today. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. We pray for the forgiveness of sin. And then finally, that he would uh, keep us from hard times, that he would keep us from temptation and from trouble toward the end. It's a great prayer. We're not going to spend a lot of time talking about this because then Jesus adds this two-sentence phrase that when we talk about this prayer, we almost never talk about this little phrase. And it's, it's quite disturbing. This is what Jesus says. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. What is this passage saying? Sometimes um, the Bible can be a little bit confusing. Sometimes some of the phrases that it says are complex because we're translating it from an ancient Greek language into modern day English. This is not one of those times. What is this passage saying? Jesus here is teaching that if we forgive others, 
for the things that they've done wrong to us, God will forgive us of our sins. But if we don't forgive others for what they've done to us, God won't forgive us for our sins. That's a little bit shocking, (laughs) a little bit disturbing maybe. And if you grew up Lutheran, you're thinking, now wait a second, that sounds a little bit like works. That sounds a little bit like I need to get something in order to receive God's grace. And I can assure you that that's not the case here. But what Jesus is doing is he's, he's revealing something about how the kingdom works. And actually, uh, I think, um, and I'm not the only one, scholars uh, have said this before me, including Martin Luther himself, that Jesus really could have said this about almost any of the, the prayers, the petitions that we say in the Lord's Prayer. Jesus could have said, um, and give us this day our daily bread as we give bread to our neighbor, right? As we help our neighbors with the things that they need, help us with the things that I need. As we supply goods and services to our neighbors, so Lord, give us what we need for today. There's almost all of the petitions in the Lord's Prayer could have, Jesus could have taught in this manner because it's not necessarily just about forgiving others, forgiving others of the things they've done to us and receiving forgiveness, but it's more about what the Lord's Prayer is doing to us and about how grace and how the kingdom operates. Because apparently there's a rule in God's kingdom that in order to take part and participate in the things that God is doing in the world, that is, pursuing the world and saving the world, in order to participate in those things, we have to be an active participant in those things. Right? So God... 2,000 years ago, sent his son, Jesus lived, he died, and he was resurrected, and we're told in scripture that through the work of Jesus Christ, all of the world's sins are forgiven. It's all forgiven. Everything that anybody has ever done wrong, does wrong, or will do wrong, God has forgiven it. God has given his grace over to the world in Jesus Christ. The reason that we're saved by faith is because faith is an active participation in God's grace, which is what's going on here. You can't receive God's forgiveness and then also withhold forgiveness from other people because then you're not participating in God's grace. God is saving the world And in order to receive, and in order to to rightfully receive his salvation means actually being part of the plan of salvation. You see, God doesn't want spectators. He doesn't want people who are just, you know, whatever, like puppy dogs begging at the, the table for food. He wants children. He wants children who are in the business of saving the world just like he wants to save the world. In order to to receive God's grace, we need to be active participants in God's grace. Which means Christians cannot both receive forgiveness and then withhold forgiveness from others. And so I think one of the most destructive things we do as Christians is being judgmental. Because that's that's what judgment is. 
in, in kind of that, the way that we understand it uh, when it comes to religious views. It's withholding judgment from others, right? Or withholding forgiveness from others. We're saying your sin, your participation in this party, this political party or that political party, your support of this organization or that organization is too heinous. It's, it's too wrong and you are a bad person because you vote this way, you support this thing, you've said this thing, you did this thing. That's what judgment is. It's saying your sins are too great for you to be accepted. And unless you change, you cannot be in. You cannot be saved. But the way that God's grace works is that 2,000 years ago, before you were even born, God already forgave you your sins. Before you were even able to repent of your sins, he already forgave them. Which means God also, that Jesus also died for the sins of your neighbor, who votes the wrong way, who supports the wrong organizations, who says the wrong things, who believes the wrong things. Jesus also died and forgave that person's sins. And so when we withhold God's grace from other people, we actually find ourselves outside of God's grace because we're not actively participating in the life and the rescue mission of God for the world. God has been very patient with you and me. He has been very gracious with you and me. And we spit in the face of God when we are not gracious and patient with our neighbors. We're no better than David committing adultery with Bathsheba. We're no better with Abraham lying about his wife Sarah being his sister instead of his wife and letting the Pharaoh or letting the leaders of Egypt be married to her and have their way with her, right? We're no better than the Israelites who continued again and again to spit in the face of God, to worship false gods. They were not active participants in God's grace. And when we withhold forgiveness, when we withhold grace from others, we find ourselves outside of God's grace as well. We spit in the face of God and all the things that he's doing to rescue the world. In order to receive God's grace, we are participants in God's grace. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's why we pray the Lord's Prayer the way that we do. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's why we pray that way. That's why we call God our Father is because we are not soldiers, we are not dogs, we are children. We are given his grace and we are in the business of rescuing the world. So, unmasked. Christians oftentimes wear the mask of judgment, of being judgmental. Of Oftentimes Christians think that it's their job to decide who's in and who's out, who's right and who's wrong, whose sins are too heinous and whose sins aren't that heinous and so they can still repent and believe and be saved, right? Oftentimes Christians wear the mask of judgment and when we take that mask off, when we unmask ourselves with judgment, we find graciousness. The challenge um, for you guys, uh, if you are a believer, the challenge for you is to find those places that you're judging, find those places that you are being judgmental, the places that you think are, the, the sins that you think are too heinous, right? The people that you think are too wrong. 
and extend grace to them. If you're not a believer, um, or maybe you're on the fence, maybe you're not sure, um, the, it's an invitation to you to participate in God's grace, to participate in this gentle, careful, long-suffering grace of God as he pursues you and seeks you and calls you to himself. This is a challenging passage because we're faced with the reality that if we withhold grace, we're actually outside of God's grace. And so the upside to that is that if we participate in God's grace, we get to forgive people. We get to live more joyful, more free lives because we're not burdened by our own um, judgment. We're not burdened by our own self-justification. We actually can be unleashed into the world to love, to care. Um, we can be for people. We can be for lots of things. And we can offer grace and freedom to our neighbors that way as well. Amen. Stay.